My name is Eric. If we don't know each other, I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. Wherever you're, you are and whatever platform you're tuning in from, I'm really glad that you're here. We're all glad that you're here. Just be sure to check in in the comments section, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, or thestory.church. Uh, a lot of people have moved from Facebook to YouTube and the story.church. I think it's a little better experience there. No offense to Mark Zuckerberg and company, but people on Facebook are like, oh my gosh, where's all my church gone? They're still here. They're still here. All right. So they're just mostly on YouTube now or the story.church. Let us know your name, where you're tuning in from, and uh, just how you're doing. We'd love to hear from you. And some of them are not even on YouTube or the story.church. Some of your brothers and sisters are right here in this house right now. How's this feel? Welcome, everybody. I'm glad you're here. Did y'all miss these chairs? Didn't you miss the chairs? How comfortable they are. Are they as comfortable as your couch? Is what you're wearing right now as comfortable as your pajamas? <laughs> no. <laughs> Any regrets? Okay. <laughs> we were a little worried that no one would come back. <laughs> it's hard to compete with pajamas and a couch, but uh, I'm glad. I'm glad to see y'all. I'm glad to hear your voices. And uh, I'm not going to ask you to get up and shake hands or hug or anything like that. You're not allowed to do any of that, all right, at all, <laughs> until we get this whole COVID thing figured out, okay? So uh, you can't even sing. You can only sing in your heart. Is that understood? I don't want your droplets flying around this building, okay? We got that? Are we clear? I'm really glad you're here, but let's keep our droplets to ourselves. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm super glad to see you, and uh, it, is, uh, it is a momentous occasion uh, to be worshiping together in person again, because it's been 210 days since we've done this. 210 days have passed since we were last together officially in person in worship. Seven long months have passed. The last like worshipy thing we did in this room together was Lee Strobel and I up here on the stage. It feels like that was seven years ago. We have been through a lot. And I'm proud of a lot of things that have happened over the past seven years. You know, I know it would be real easy to look back and think of all the bad stuff. I'm just so grateful for so many of the good things. Because like Pastor Gio said, no matter how bad it got, no matter how completely the rest of the world around us shut down for a time, your church never closed. And I look back over the last seven months and I tried to take stock of the kinds of things God has done in our midst over the last seven months. And I think back to the over 80 full-length worship services that we live-streamed that reached over 1,100 people per week. I think to the 150-plus new people who have gotten involved in the story groups. That's new people. Obviously, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more that are involved in story groups. That's new people. At least 80 of those new people have never been in this building before. And they were like, that's my church. Which takes a lot of courage and faith because we could all be a bunch of weirdos. And they wouldn't know that any different, any better. And yet they, they bought in. They're in now. And I want to say a special welcome to you. Some of you, it's your first time in this building today. How awesome is that? Over the last seven months, we produced 72 new podcast episodes, 45 full-length video lessons for Story Kids and for our students as well. We produced all kinds of other video content like Bible studies. Uh, at least 16 full-length Bible studies were produced online. 
uh, and, and, and put out to the masses. Ten coffees with the pastors, with Pastor Gio and I on Facebook Live. That was probably my favorite thing that's happened, if I'm honest. Pastor Gio and I bonded over those. That was great. Um, we made our corn teams and all that with our favorite famous people. It was a big competition. It was a big deal. We gave out silly prizes. It was so much fun. It got us through the day. Ten new members joined who haven't been in this building before. They were like, I'm all in with this church without ever seeing it. Uh, eight baptisms were celebrated over the last seven months. Six months of construction at Timber Grove. That building is almost complete and will be open for worship and other kinds of gatherings very soon, within weeks. That building will be complete. We will become a church of two locations. One Easter service inside an old French chapel. Do you remember that? That was crazy. Great. How often do you get a chance to do that? Only 2020 would give you that opportunity. And of course, about a half a million Zoom meetings, give or take a few thousand. That felt like a lot of Zoom meetings. Should have bought that Zoom stock back in February. That would have paid off nicely. What a year it has been. And through it all, never once did your church close. Even when we couldn't be together here as a staff or leadership, we still kept doing the work of the church. Why? Because at a time like this, I mean, this is no time for the people of God to retreat in fear. This is no time for us to cower. This is a time for us to advance. This is the, the need for the gospel in our culture has never been more obvious. This is a time for us to step forward in faith. And that's why if you call the story home, recently you received in the mail from the story a packet um, that not only looked back at 2020, but looked ahead to 2021 and all of the dreams and goals. Like we're not stuck in 2020. We're looking ahead to 2021 already, setting some goals, dreaming big dreams. This will be the first year for the story to be in more than one location at a time. Our first full year of functioning with two campuses, actually three, because I don't know if you're aware, we planted another new campus over the last seven months, it's called The Story Online. And we are now a church with three campuses, truly. And the reach of the message God's given us has never been greater. It's never reached farther. And so all I'm asking you and y'all watching online is to consider in prayer, in your reflection and conversation with your families, with your spouse, with God, your financial commitment to The Story's mission in 2021. I know these are hard times. Our giving and revenue side of this whole operation in 2020 has reflected that it's hard times, like $400,000 below where we thought we would be. But we've also been able to cut on the spending side by being good stewards, by being responsible. So praise God, the story's in the black in 2020. Woo! Can't say that for everybody or every, every budget, but here we are. God has been so good and y'all have been so generous. And as we look ahead, I, I fully expect God to show us even bigger things, even better things. And so we'll be talking more about this in the coming weeks. Y'all just keep this in mind and in your prayers as we go forward. We're here today to start a brand new sermon series. We're moving past all those difficult conversations we've been having about all those incendiary issues and we're going to talk about politics for four weeks. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, kind of. The new, <laughs> the new series is called Elect Jesus. I promise it is not what it probably sounds like. It's not just a, a, a politics of Jesus kind of a conversation. We're going to have a better conversation than that. 
Um, but I do want to talk about politics just to the extent that I point out how politics has so obviously supplanted religion, uh, and, and Christianity in particular, as the religion of America. Like, it is the fastest growing religious movement in America, politics. Right wing and left wing, by the way. If you define religion as a way of life in, by which people get a, a transcendent sense of meaning, a communal sense of belonging, can anyone deny that politics is a new religion? I miss the babies crying. I do. I know you may not have. I know she definitely did not, but I do <laughs> miss it. Don't worry one bit. Okay, so God loves it. Everybody say, God loves baby crying. I told you not to talk. You're droplets. Okay, so, all right. So, man, I missed this. Okay, so what we're saying is politics, left wing, right wing, is the new religion. It is where people are deriving a sense of meaning and a sense of belonging in our daily lives. It has become all-encompassing, okay? And I think that's undeniable given the conversations that we're having, given how social media goes. Like, it's either politics or it's ugly cats on social media. That's all you ever see. So I, we're not having any other conversations because, especially in a year like this, 2020, election year, it's just every 1.6 seconds, there's a new ad, a new claim, a new rumor, a new lie, a new everything about this election, as if that's all that matters. And I think we all agree with that. I think the issue is we, we tend to think that the only people who see their politics as a religion are the people on the other side of the aisle. So my most conservative friends will say things like, you know, we're, we're on the right side of history here. Like, we're, we haven't really changed. Conservatives, you know, by nature, we just kind of stand pat, and the world around us goes crazy. So we're normal, and they're crazy. And then my most liberal friends go, no, 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 we're on the right side of history. You know, we're the ones that have this right, and conservatives completely off the rails. They've lost their minds in 2020. And then the rest of us, most of us, kind of stand somewhere in the middle, center right, center left, and we look left, and we go, y'all sound crazy. And we look right, and we go, y'all sound crazy too. <laughs> and we don't really know what to make of it. And so we watch SportsCenter, uh, and even it's political now, and we, we just float through, you know, trying to survive through November right? But I want us to have a better, a better conversation. I want us to talk about, uh, about what really matters. When you look at people who, who become political converts and have created this religious system complete with purity tests and witch hunts and well-defined villains and enemies and rewards for the faithful and punishments for the unfaithful, like all of it's there. When you look at it, I don't really think either side is crazy. I think they're zealous for something. And I think we're created to be zealous for something. And there's nothing wrong with zeal as long as the object of your zeal is worthy of your zeal. And my point here is that politics, right wing or left wing, are almost always unworthy of your zeal. And I'm not telling you to not be political. I'm definitely not telling you not to vote. I'm going to vote. I hope you all all vote. Let's vote, let's be good citizens, vote your conscience, all that stuff. But let's keep politics in its proper perspective. Because I'm going to tell you a secret. This might offend you. But every candidate you support could sweep in November. Every candidate of your political party of choice 
could sweep this November by some miracle. Every prayer you prayed would come true. Everything would go your way. Not just in 2020, but 2022 midterm, 24, 26, 28, all of it could go your party's way and Americans would be no better off. You know how I know this? Because our society, by most, almost every metric, is greater than it's ever been. Y'all mad at me? Our society is more prosperous than it's ever been. Fewer people are living in destitute poverty than they ever have. We have more transparency and accountability than we ever have thanks to technology. We have more technologies, more connectivity than we ever had before. We are more informed than we've ever been before. We have the greatest systems we've ever had, the greatest outcomes, I should say, we ever had as Americans, and yet everyone's miserable about it. And we're more divided than we've ever been. And I'm just going to say the Christian take on this is that maybe the answer isn't in politics. Maybe we don't just need better politics. Maybe what we need in our culture, in our own lives, is a transformed heart. Maybe that's where it's really at. And in the Christian worldview, Jesus is the way to a transformed heart. No matter who's president, if your heart isn't transformed, you're going to hate people on the other side. You're going to be miserable, unhappy, unsatisfied, unfulfilled. But if Jesus changes your heart, it's not going to affect your well-being. Who's in the Oval Office? If your person wins or not. So we have all these other conversations at the expense of the conversation that matters most. Where's your heart? How's your heart? Has your heart been transformed? And so when we look to Jesus, what we see, what I see is a different kind of platform. If he were in politics, which I don't think he ever would be, um, I don't think it's for him, that life, but he would build a different platform, a different set of core beliefs. And what we've done with this series, Elect Jesus, is we've picked a few of his sayings that fit on political yard signs, as you see all around me. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be unpacking the platform of Jesus. All right. And so to start out this series, I thought maybe we would start with Jesus's first speech, his first sermon, which if I asked you, or let's say I just asked the average person on the street, what was Jesus's first sermon about? What do you think people would say? They would say stuff like, Forgiveness, love, peace, social justice, something that I like. <laughs> because we all kind of make Jesus in our own image over time, but we would all be wrong if those were our answers. Jesus wasn't the peacenik hippie we often dream him up to be. Jesus was different. When we look at his first sermon in Matthew chapter 4, immediately following the passage where he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil for 40 days, and he fasts for 40 days. This is what happens immediately following that, leading up to Jesus' first sermon. So this is Matthew chapter 4. Find my place. Matthew 4, verses 12 and 13, and then verse 17. So then the devil left him. The angels came and attended, attended to him. When Jesus heard that John, his cousin, John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus began to preach. 
repent. Repentance was the theme of Jesus' first sermon. Now, when we think of Jesus' repentance, it doesn't often come to mind. Like the kinds of preachers who harp on repentance, hey, that's John the Baptist. That's the Old Testament prophets, these really intense guys, the repentance bros. You know, they're like wearing camel fur and eating locusts and stuff and telling people that they're bad. That's not Jesus. Jesus told people that they're good, right? That's what we think. Jesus isn't some sidewalk preacher with a foghorn and a milk crate downtown on the sidewalk. Jesus is better than that, right? Well, maybe not. If that's how you're looking at it, Jesus' first sermon was repent. Repentance was of the utmost importance to Jesus. Why? It's not because your repentance activates his mercy or his goodness. His mercy and goodness are already given to you. They're already yours. No matter how you've been living, his gift of forgiveness has already been given to you. But repentance is the act of opening the gift. Without repentance, you might never know his forgiveness. You might never experience his forgiveness. You might never truly receive the gift of his forgiveness. Now, we all know this is how it works. You've forgiven someone who chose not to experience your forgiveness, right? Of course. You've forgiven someone who, because of their unrepentance, chose not to experience the gift of your forgiveness. And the way this works, what I'm saying here is that it can work the same way with us and God. God has already extended its forgiveness to you. The worst thing you've ever done or ever will do, already taken care of. But if you want to experience the gift of that forgiveness, repentance is essential. So in Luke chapter 13, Jesus is all about this message. So Jesus is like, whoa, three times he says, repent or die. Jesus, sweet, hippie Jesus, repent or die. And he says this to his followers, his closest disciples. He says this to the people who've dedicated their lives to him. They come to him in that chapter, y'all, and they're like, man, that Pontius Pilate is a bad dude, right? And he's like, you think you're better than Pontius Pilate? Repent. They're like, whoa, man, <laughs> we're with you. And they're like, those Gentiles, they're, they're hideous, right? Like they're living all kinds, of, all kinds of wrong ways. And he goes, you think you're better than the Gentiles? You need to repent just as much as they do. And this is confusing for those of you that are new to this thing called church, right? Because you've been hearing me tell you for months, maybe, that Jesus paid it all. Jesus already covered your debt. Every sin is already forgiven. All that's left for you to do is go to heaven and dance on the clouds and all this. Like, I've already told you it's a free gift. And so this feels confusing to a new believer and maybe to not new believers. This feels confusing. Why do we have to do anything? Again, some gifts are left unopened. Some gifts can be left unopened. Some chains from your past can be broken, but you live as though you're still a slave. We do this all the time. 
The chains are broken. They're on the ground around us. The stuff that used to bind us no longer does. Jesus bought our freedom by his blood on the cross. Praise God. And we continue living the same way we did when we were slaves. This is not brain surgery here. This is not rocket science. Like we do this all the time. We say we're free. We live as slaves. The chains are broken. We live as though we're bound. And and I know that we do this I know that we need to talk more about repentance because I see it in our lives and I hear it in our conversations. The things we talk about as believers sometimes, those of us that are in as Christians, have nothing to do with repentance. We think repentance is something people do when they come to Jesus. Yeah, that repentance stuff, I did that once. Now I'm a Christian, been a Christian for 50 years, haven't repented since, you know, that kind of craziness. But that's, that's how we look at it sometimes. And I know this by our conversations. We have all kinds of other shallow conversations, way more than we talk about the sin in our lives. And I could illustrate this with you. Imagine if, I don't want y'all screaming out because droplets again. Okay, so imagine if I asked you a series of questions and I said you have half a second to give me your first just instinctual response to every question, right? And I asked you, for example, who's the, who's the greatest basketball player who ever lived? Half the room would say, MJ. Half the room would say, LeBron James. And they would be right. And then at the, uh, there's one person, <laughs> sorry, there's one person who's always like, Larry Bird. And he doesn't just, he doesn't watch basketball, right? So <laughs> he likes short shorts and he liked that movie Hoosiers a little too much. But I think, I think most of us would say MJ or, or LeBron James, right? Okay. What if I said you can have one of these things to eat for the rest of your life, only one of these three things can you eat for the rest of your life, brisket, ribs, or sausage? We divide this room into three groups. I know it. Brisket, ribs, sausage. One person's in the back, pulled pork. And we're all like, get out of Texas. And and so most of us would be pretty equally divided. All right. What do I say? What if I said, who's the greatest? Uh, Garth Brooks or George Strait? Garth Brooks over here. George Strait over here. Right? Florida Georgia line in the back. Nobody would say that. I'm just kidding. So, so, I'm <laughs> sorry. So, and then I said, what if I said, what if I said, is Texas A&M just a really awesome school or is it a cult? And, uh, and half of y'all would go, it's a cult. And then the cult members would go, whoop. And, um, <laughs> and we would be, we would have strong opinions is what I'm trying to say. We would have instantaneous, strong opinions on all these things. And then what if, what if in the next question I said, all right, what is uh, the ugliest, most grievous sin in your life that needs repentance now? I promise you'd hear crickets in the room. Because we're not thinking about it. Because it's like we think we're not at war. Because Pastor Eric said Jesus already won. So what more is there to do? Listen, Jesus can win a war for you that you choose not to accept. Jesus can win a battle for you that you continue to fight. It happens all the time when we leave the gift of his forgiveness unopened. How can you win a war when you don't even know what you're fighting? This happens all the time. You know, uh, as a pastor now for many years, gosh, too many, uh, you know, you see and hear it all. 
And uh, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, most, most of you would be surprised, I think, by the stuff that I hear on a weekly basis from my beloved flock, uh, the, the message we get ourselves into, the problems we find ourselves in. It can be a little overwhelming. COVID, I will not lie, COVID has presented many of us with some significant problems and consequences. But one thing that a little bit of time gives you as, you, as I've done this for years now, is a little bit of perspective. I'm able to look back and match stories uh, with other stories. I'm able to compare and see how many of our stories are really so similar. A lot of the extenuating circumstances are different, but the reasons why we get ourselves in trouble is pretty similar. It's pretty scripted. It can be very predictable the more you hear these stories. I was thinking back, there's like 10 guys that came to mind who have uh, come to me in different capacities and, and I've walked with them through some difficulties, but the problems that they had were very similar. A few different circumstances, but they were all in their 30s, give or take a year or two. They were all married. Most of them had kids. They all complained about the same kinds of pressures at work, the same kinds of pressures at home. They all faced the same kind of struggles to varying degrees. And they all came to me because they'd been unfaithful to their wives. I'm not picking on men here. There have been women who've had the same kind of story, but here, I'm just talking about these 10 men that I could look back. I could name them right now. Y'all want me to name them? I can name, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to name them. Some of y'all guys in here are like, whoa. <laughs> what happened to that confidentiality thing? No, I'm not going to name any names. But I could. I could. All right? Better be nice to me. <laughs> just kidding. So there's, there's like 10 guys I could think of who have lived that story, a very similar set of circumstances and a very similar set of pressures, and then the same sin was the breaking point. And literally half of these guys, like five of these guys, turned out to be not success stories. They're not the ones that you include in a sermon, you know, where you want to make everybody feel good about Jesus and stuff. About five of these guys are now living somewhere else. They're living in an apartment by themselves or with, you know, Jenny from work or whatever, or some series of, of new flames, and they're posting on Instagram like they're 25 instead of 35, and, and they're seeing their kids every other weekend, if, if, uh, if they're lucky, maybe every weekend. Their kids get to see their dad once in a while. You know, that, that's how it works out, and, and, and that's their reality now. These guys, you know, in spite of what I told them or what the Bible says or anything else, they looked in the mirror in the cold light of day with their sin well in sight and the consequences standing right before them. And they looked in the mirror and they said, I am who I am. I feel bad, but not bad enough. You know, I'm under a lot of pressure. My wife doesn't understand. A man has needs, et cetera, et cetera. And now there's this other set of guys, this these other five guys that I look to, and, and they're the guys that looked in the mirror in the cold light of day with their sin still in sight, with their consequences standing right in front of them. And they looked in the mirror and they said, my God, what have I done? My God, who have I become? My God, what is about to happen if I don't change? And yes, there are things other people around me probably need to work on, but I am the source of my problems. My sin is the problem here, and I want to repent. And these men are working it out. I'm not saying it's been easy. 
They've had slip-ups and stumbling blocks and all of this, but they're working it out with their wives. They've repented, and, and more than just saying it, they're doing it, and their people closest to them can see them working on it, you know? And it's a beautiful thing to behold. They're more motivated and, and, and more sure of themselves than ever, and they're helping lead around the church. And these guys, they got something. The other guys get. And with these two groups in mind, it will be real easy for me to go, well, you know, some marriages work out, some don't. Half of all marriages ended in divorce, and this worked out, met the statistical quotas, and, you know, these were soulmates and these weren't. That's so weak. That is so weak. That is not the truth. The only, the only factor that I can point to across the board and say this was over here, but it wasn't over here, is repentance repentance. They all felt bad, but only half of them repented. And Paul talks about the difference in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7. He talks about the difference between just feeling bad, which everybody does, most people, unless you're just a sociopath, you feel bad, and repenting. This is what he said. Uh, This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 8 through 11, all right? He said, and he's, he's, he's talking about how he hurt their feelings in his past letter, okay? So it's just so you understand. He said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. I did regret it for a second, <laughs> but I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. This is the key. Remember, you remember nothing else. Remember this verse right here. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. There is a difference between just having feelings, earthly sorrow that really doesn't do anything. Earthly sorrow just says, sorry, not sorry. I am who I am. It is what it is. We weren't meant to be. All these pithy excuses But godly sorrow says, what a wretched man that I am. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, forgive me. I'm fallen. I'm not who you created me to be. Help me. I want to change. It occurs to me that at this time, this moment, as we emerge from this valley, that we've walked through for 210 days. And that's not to say we're at the end of it, but I think we feel like we're taking steps in the right direction. There's a light at the tunnel, at the end of the tunnel, that kind of thing. But as we take those steps forward, this is the perfect time to stop and look back. What has this season done to you? How has this time affected your walk with Jesus? How many more hours have you spent arguing with people of the opposite political persuasion on Twitter, on Facebook? How many more hours have you spent watching Fox News and MSNBC instead of being in the Word, instead of praying, instead of having real conversations about the sin 
in your life that requires repentance. How many of us have developed some habits that are leading us to death, even though Jesus died for all of our sins, that gift remains unopened under the tree of our hearts because we would rather have our sin than Jesus' gift. How many of us have gotten to the point of coping with COVID by having at least a drink a day? Are you having the drink? Or does the drink have you at this point? How many of us could say the same thing about visiting those websites, watching those things online? How many of us could say the same thing about our anxiety? Or how short our fuse has gotten with our family, our friends, our spouse? How easily angry we are, what a temper we have. Repent. It's not complicated, and it's not beyond your capacity to repent. It starts with the will to repent. It starts with the words, I repent. It starts by saying, my God, I don't want to live this way anymore. I know this is not who I really am. It starts by saying the problem in my life, the worst problem I face is the sin within me. And once you make that first initial decision, you call on others in your life who love the Lord, people you trust who are following Jesus and repenting of their sin too, and you say, I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need some accountability. I'm going to need a text message, a phone call. I'm going to need you to be there for me because I don't know what the journey ahead holds. I know where the path I was on was going. I'm choosing a new path. I don't see where it's heading. I'm going to need you to help me. When I fall down, I'm going to need you to pick me up. That's what we do here. So you can make the decision to repent alone right now in your own heart. But the path toward repentance, you'll need community around you. But you're in luck. That's why we're here. That's why God calls his church together. So I pray you repent of your sin. I pray that I repent of my sin because I know that God made us to live and not to die, to be free and no longer enslaved. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your gift that has forgiven all of our sin and paid all of our debt. Forgive us for all the times in our lives that we chose to leave your gift unopened and give us courage to open that gift now, to live into the freedom you've afforded us now instead of living as though the bonds were never broken when they were broken long ago, 2,000 years ago, they were broken. And we are free. I pray you give us courage to live accordingly. I pray you give us courage to repent of our sin, not just to confess emotionally, but to repent physically from the sins that have bound us. And we thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for your power that's available to us. We thank you for your life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.